Let us begin our sermon with prayer. Gracious Lord, as we look to the incarnation of your Son, we pray that you bless our sermon so that we may see your glory in the worst of trials and the humblest of circumstances. Amen. Our text for our sermon is Exodus chapter 16, verses 6 through 11. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, At evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your constant grumbling against the Lord. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses said, Now the Lord will give you meat to eat in the evening, and as much bread as you want in the morning, because the Lord has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Tell the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling. As Aaron spoke to the entire Israelite community, they turned towards the wilderness, and suddenly the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord spoke to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Say to them, At evening you will eat meat, and in the morning you will eat bread until you are full. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in verse 7 of today's text, when the glory of the Lord is mentioned, for the first time when we put the words together in Hebrew, as the Jewish people still pronounce it today, the kavod Adonai is brought in its form for the first time in all the scriptures. That is the way the Old Testament talks about that cloud that appeared, the kavod Adonai, and it's the glory of God. Now, that cloud, when you see it, would be very scary, and we're going to cover that when it settles on Mount Sinai in another sermon. Many Christians get confused. If you were to ask them what is the point of all the scriptures, they would say, in the Old Testament, God is an angry God, a God of wrath and revenge. In the New Testament, he's a merciful, kind God. Such thinking is what led the philosopher Frederick Nietzsche to conclude that God is dead. That's not the point of Scripture at all. In fact, as we hear in John chapter 1 of Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it continues to tell us, through Him all things were made, and apart from Him nothing was made that has been made. So, if Jesus is the spokesman for the Trinity, He's the one talking through this cloud over 1,500 years before he would take on human flesh. And so, as we look to the coming birth of our Savior, where he takes on human flesh to save us, during this midweek Advent service, sermons, when Advent means to come, we look to the coming of our Savior, we look back to the past as Old Testament believers, seeing that cloud of the Lord, the kavod Adonai, we'll look at three of its appearances, and our sermon series is the glory of the Lord, is revealed, and today that's specifically in spite of our grumbling. Now, why did the Israelites grumble? They didn't have to be scientists to use the scientific method. See, the scientific method is based on observation. You observe a a phenomenon, you make a hypothesis, you test it. And you didn't need a telescope or or a, a microscope to figure this out. There was over a million Israelites. They were in the desert. There's no way that desert was going to sustain them. 
If they found an oasis, they would be like the grasshoppers of the 1930s descending upon the fields in Nebraska and the Dakotas and Kansas and destroying them. They also knew the desert didn't have enough water. In fact, the desert didn't even have enough food to sustain their animals that they could eat their animals. Scientifically, they were going to die. But there's a problem. What we say is science are the natural principles that God uses to govern this universe. And we're thankful for them. He is hidden behind them. We can miss that he works behind them. But when God chooses to do a miracle, that's when he temporarily suspends them. Now, for example, God-hating scientists who actually shouldn't because they get the joy of discovering his creation get angry and they, about miracles because all bets are off if God can suddenly temporarily suspend them. And yet we're thankful that God doesn't suspend the rules of science every day because when I wake up in the morning, I'm pretty confident I'm not going to float off the earth because of the scientific principle God established of gravity. And I'm pretty confident that if I get a headache or something like that, I can take an aspirin that's going to work. We can observe this and use this to our benefit. But God can temporarily suspend that and do a miracle. And the Israelites should have figured that out. Because they had been slaves to Egypt. They could do nothing to free themselves. They, had not, they didn't have enough power to free themselves. And so God went to work. God could have instantly freed them, but he used 10 plagues. He used those to strengthen the Israelites' faith in him to see how he was working against every Egyptian god. And then when Pharaoh said enough, yes, let the people go. And, and they're going away. Pharaoh changed his mind and he, he gathered his army. And the Egyptians at this time were a powerhouse. They were the strongest army of the known world at that time. And they pursued the Israelites God parted the Red Sea, another miracle, and the Israelites passed through it on dry land. But when the Egyptian army followed them, God closed the Red Sea upon them. You will hear the Israelites grumble for food and water, because they know the desert can't possibly sustain them, but you'll never hear them grumble, and Pharaoh's army's gonna come and kill us and take us back to Egypt, because they know that God had destroyed that army in a miraculous way. Now. A logical person, especially one who had faith, who had seen God using those miracles, should have been able to apply their faith and say, through the plagues he destroyed Egypt, and then he destroyed Egypt's army. And he'll certainly provide for us. But they didn't. They grumbled. Oh, we're out here in the desert. If only we were around pots of flesh like we had back in good old Egypt where we were enslaved, but we're forgetting that part. Why? Why couldn't they make that application? Because they had original sin. When Adam and Eve were created, they were begotten in God's image. They were created in God's image. But after they fell, we're told when they begot children, the scripture says they begot children in their image. The truth of the matter is, just as the Egyptians were enslaved, we are enslaved to the devil. We will worship and trust in anything but the true God. We will think any good thought except for the truly good thoughts that are revolving around God and his providing for us. Science struggles to understand original sin. And it's kind of, in an ironic way, funny to listen to scientists, especially when it comes to psychology and stuff, say, 
evolution has programmed us to, and ultimately it's programmed us to look out for number one, is what they're trying to say. Well, we can't love our neighbor the way, a, uh, the way God wants us to, and we certainly cannot love God unless God sends his Holy Spirit and creates a new person in us. Science struggles to understand all of that. They don't have a, me a measuring device for, uh, the, to see if you have that new person in you that is faith clinging to God. And in fact, science is actually beginning to understand a lot about free will or the lack thereof. Now, scripturally, to quote Luther, because uh, he gives a good analogy, Luther gave the analogy because you're a slave to the devil, you're a donkey who's either being ridden by the devil or you're being ridden by God. There's nothing in between. Either you're doing the devil's will or you're doing God's will. End of discussion. Your sinful nature is the puppet. Is The, the devil loves that puppet. Uh, your new man wrestles with him. He's being ridden by God and, and he struggles him down. It wrestles him down. So it's kind of fun when you listen like to uh, social psychology talking. They're beginning to realize things like, your DNA has a lot to play in your personality. And for example, people who have stage fright, there's various reasons, but some people you can look at their DNA and say they'll have stage fright. They can't help that. There goes free will. And lots of times the circumstances in which you're born in are going to impact uh, even your childhood and your upbringing will impact the way you handle stressful situations and stuff. So even science is beginning to realize we don't have as free a will as we think, but you're either being ridden by God or you're being ridden by the devil. And the Israelites here are refusing to apply the new man that God has given them and see if he's freed us, then he's certainly going to, uh, if he's freed us from Pharaoh and saved us, he's certainly not leading us out to the devil to kill, out to the desert to kill us. He's going to provide food. Now, because we don't have a free will, because when it comes to spiritual things, because we are uh, slaves to the devil until God sets us free, we're in trouble. And that's why God became a man. Just as God had to free the Israelites from their slavery, and this is why we look to God taking on human flesh. And yes, we got to realize that there is God's glory as a man hanging on the cross. And when he cries out, it is finished. That is God's spokesman, Jesus Christ, telling you, all the work for your sin has been done. Now, when we grumble against God like the Israelites did here, oh, you did all those plagues for us and you destroyed Pharaoh's army, but you couldn't possibly provide for us out here in the desert. We're failing the test. When God tests us, it's not for his knowledge. God knows everything. When God tests us, it's to show us where our faith is strong. And when that happens in the Bible, it's because something big is coming down the turnpike and the people will have the faith to apply it. Or, as in the case with the Israelites, he's showing them where the faith is weak. And it's important that they know where their faith is weak so that they learn to, tr to cling to God and trust in him. But this generation refuses to do it. They'll cry because they don't have enough meat and they'll cry because they don't have enough bread and they'll cry because they don't have enough water. They won't trust in God. And eventually when they get to the borders of the promised land, they'll send 12 spies out. Only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, are able to say, these Canaanites, nothing with God. The other 10 won't, and the people will believe those 10. Now, they need to have that kind of faith because they're not going to conquer the promised land with their blood, sweat, and tears. They're going to conquer it by God handing it over to them. For example, the walled city of Jericho, it was fortified. 
How could you possibly defeat a city by marching circles around it and blowing trumpets? Doesn't work. God had set that up. And they were supposed to trust in God. And if they wouldn't trust in him to provide for them in the desert, then they're certainly not going to trust in him when he hands them the promised land. Well, they refused to trust in God, and God finally said, your children will get the promised land, not you. In the meantime, when they're grumbling, they're failing the test. But God would supply for them anyways. And that truly is the grace of God. I didn't lead you out here in the desert just to kill you. I'm going to take care of you. And they get the, the quail that fly in. But in the morning, they'll get this stuff called manna. Literally in the Hebrew, they say manna, which is translated, what's this? And it's a dough that they had to collect. God supplied what they needed, but they were to be stewards of what God entrusted to them. So, for example, they couldn't collect two days' supply of the manna. It would go bad and rot unless it was Friday because they were not to work on the Sabbath day, which is our Saturday. So God would have to supply and they would have to trust in him. They would be stewards of what he provided. And in the same way, the glory of the Lord is revealed in spite of our grumbling, providing what is scientifically impossible. God became a man. That defies science. That baby lying in a cattle feed trough, more on that in a minute, that is our Savior. And he does it in a way that the world doesn't expect. Even the devil thought he was getting him killed when he has him nailed to the cross. And bam! That's how God suffers the punishment for our sins, where God abandons God on that cross. So God supplied salvation for you and I, but we need to believe in it. That's John 3, 16. And so God sent his word, usually through the mouth of another person to you, but you can get it by reading. And there he sent his Holy Spirit through that word to nourish your faith. So the glory of the Lord is revealed in spite of our grumbling. For the Israelites, he provided what they knew scientifically was impossible. He provided the meat and the miracle bread. And for you and I, he provides what is scientifically impossible. He wins salvation for us and he supplies our faith for us. Now, When God appears in that cloud, the kavod Adonai, this is the first appearance, like I said, where that Hebrew term appears in its form and everything. That was glorious. There was no denying that's God speaking through that cloud. But do we see that same glory when a cattle feed trough is used for his crib? Do we see that same glory when... Well, led by a bright star, the the Magi who probably traveled over a month to come. He's no longer in a barn, but he's in a humble house. But Herod has the plan to kill him. And so suddenly there's a glorious angels in a great cloud trying to kill me. No. Joseph is awoken in a dream, is told in a dream, take the baby and flee down to Egypt for a while. It doesn't seem like a baby who needs to have their diaper changed, who needs to be nursed. That doesn't seem to be God, does it? In fact, God had promised that the Savior, the Messiah, was going to be a king like David. Now, we get confused on that. The Jewish people and often many Christians still today think king like David, as in David is the fulfillment. So he's going to have an earthly Israel. Actually, David is the foreshadow. Somebody sees your shadow coming around the corner. That's not you. You are the one. David's kingship was pointing the fact that Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. 
But he would win his kingdom by the humblest of circumstances. He would be a descendant of David. It appears that Luke is tracing Jesus' genealogy through Mary. And Matthew's clearly tracing his genealogy through what would be his adoptive father, Joseph. But Jesus isn't born in, in, in a palace with a gold crib. He puts himself in the humblest of circumstances. Even when he dies, what, what does he have for possessions? Well, just the clothes on his back. Didn't even own a home. And the Roman guards guided, uh, divided that up by casting lots for it. See, Jesus didn't pamper himself. He suffered all the miseries of this world. Now, I told you at the beginning of this sermon, Jesus is the spokesman of the Trinity. Whenever God speaks in the Old Testament, that's Christ before he takes on human flesh. The first time we know for sure God the Father is speaking is at Jesus' baptism. But immediately after Jesus is baptized, what happens? He's led out in the desert, and the first temptation that's recorded, God's miraculously keeping his son alive, but it appears that he's... He, he still had hunger pains. His tummy didn't have food for 40 days. Turned these rocks into bread, which would be having him no longer trust in God's providence. You and I worry about the food in our stomach and, and clothes on our back and roofs over our head. We worry about losing our jobs that provide them. We worry about our cars breaking down, which get us to work to provide for those things. But Jesus, born in those humble circumstances, living under those, could suffer every temptation you and I do, and especially being especially tempted by the devil in ways you and I would fold, and yet Jesus never fell. He was born in this way so that he could do what the world didn't see. It doesn't seem to be God's glory hanging on the cross as people spit on him. And yet that is where God's glory really is. Because just as the Israelites grumbled against him and he appears in that cloud, yeah, he should have smote them. But he didn't. He provided for them. And Jesus on that cross, when everybody was mocking and ridiculing him, he should have come off and smote them. But he didn't. He stayed there to win salvation for you and I. And that's God's glory, his grace. So we see the glory of the Lord is revealed in spite of our grumbling, appearing in humility when he came for us instead of in that glorious cloud so that he could save us. Now, whenever that term, the kavod Adonai, appears in the Old Testament, God's about to do something big. That generation would live off that manna, what is it, bread, and their children would live off it until their children crossed the Jordan River and entered the promised land. Something big was happening. When that baby was born in a barn, that was God taking on human flesh. Something big was about to happen. Let me summarize that by reading 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, and it has now been revealed through the appearance of of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. When the glory of the Lord appears, he's about to do something big. That baby in a barn, maybe the world doesn't see his glory. That man on the cross, maybe the world doesn't see his glory. That is his glory winning salvation for you and I. So we have eternal life. That is big. So as we look at the glory of the Lord being revealed today, we see it's revealed in spite of our grumbling. We grumble about the world and our circumstances. And God provides what's scientifically impossible. He provides salvation for us. 
So he appears in humility when he came for us so that he could be our substitute and so that he could and did save us. Amen. Now may the God of hope fill you with complete joy and peace as you continue to believe so that you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.